When I first met Stephen, no, that's not right. <laughs> Growing up, uh, as I learned uh, the nature of the Bible, a lot of my theology became a checklist. Yes, I agree with that. Yep, agree with that. These things are true. And that's where it stopped. Instead of letting it actually seep into me to transform me, because that's what it's to do. It's not a checklist. It's so much more. It's to become part of me, and that makes all the difference. And so what I want to do today is we're, we've been going through covenant. I want to look at the Trinity and this thing that is so easy to become a checklist because it's so complicated <laughs> and make it more than just a checklist because that's not what it is. So opening with a couple quotes here. The first one from Michael Reeves in his book, Delighting in the Trinity. The Trinity is not some inessential add-on to God, some optional software that can be plugged into him. At bottom, in essence, this God is not first of all creator or ruler or even deity in some abstract sense. He is father loving his son in the fellowship of the spirit. A God who is in himself a community of love, who before all things could never be anything but love. And if you trust and come to know such a being, it changes absolutely everything. Another one from Herman Bavinck. In the doctrine of the Trinity beats the heart of the whole revelation of God for the redemption of humanity. As the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, our God is above us, before us, and within us. The doctrine of the Trinity, God is in one essence and in three persons, shapes and structures all of our Christian faith and practice. So before we dive into the sermon, let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to all gather here together. I thank you for the fact that you actively move in our lives and want to actively participate with us. I pray that you would just open our eyes and that you would allow me to speak what you would have me speak. In your name, amen. So we've been doing a series on covenant, and so I just want to do a recap for, especially for the visitors, of just sort of what we've been doing. So we're actually on, this is week six in a, I don't know how many week period of covenant. So Wayne gave us an introduction on covenant, and there was a ver lot of things that were covered in there, but there was an emphasis on the parallels in marriage and what we should be thinking out with covenant there. Steve looked at how there was a repeating cycle of how God moves in covenant with his people, that there are steps that happen and repeat over and over again. My father did baptism in light of the covenant and how that, those tie together. Warren looked at the idea of how the new covenant brings changes that we haven't seen before, for instance, like things like authority, how our authority has changed with what Christ did on the cross and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Michael, last week, looked at the continuous story of the covenants and the deep connections between every single one of them, that they're not just standalones, but that there's a story that connects them all together and it flows together. Now, with that, I've been sort of sitting in the back listening, and I keep thinking, boy, I'm going to get a definition for covenant. And so far, we really haven't gotten one. And 
it's been interesting to sort of start to think about that. You know, if you look at what covenants have been used in the Bible, they were used for king with his people, a king to a king, a husband to a wife, a parent to a child, and more. Most of these are even the way God talks about how his covenants work. He'll refer to those different aspects and describe it in those terms. So if you're looking for a definition for covenant, sorry, keep looking. I'm not giving you one today. But hopefully we will get some more aspects of understanding how covenant is and what it's for. Now, growing up, I had this thought about how God works in history that was something along the lines of like, God will choose someone because he wants to work with them, but he could have chosen another person and done a different thing as we're sort of reading through the Bible, and that the way he chooses, chooses to reveal himself could be different. He could have done it differently. Sort of like Google Maps. Imagine that you have to get from here to here. Next slide, please. And you get the alternative route options, and God says, I could go here, or I could follow this route, or I could follow this route. As long as I get from point A to point B, we're good. That's how I, started to, how I sort of thought about how God works. And I think hopefully most of you recognize that creates a, a complication or um, it doesn't capture the nature of the God that we serve. And that's a problem. And so the other way to think about, and the more I, I meditate on it, this seems to be the way that God works. The very way that he works in history reveals fundamental things about him. We shouldn't think he would choose something for arbitrary methods to reveal himself. He's revealing himself in a very specific way and how he moves. So, if that's true, the second one, not the first one, then there's a quote from Ralph Smith. If history reveals truth about who God is in himself, then it reveals that covenant is, not, is something essential to the eternal reality of God. It is precisely this conclusion that is required by the overwhelming predominance of covenant as the one and only manner of God relating to man and the creation. So covenant's not something where God went, I made creation and I've got these creatures and I've got to figure out how to relate to them. Hmm. No, it is something about the very essence of who God is that is revealed through the covenant. And it isn't some side aspect where he has to figure out later on what to do about it. This is truly how God operates because this is who God is. This is how he is. Another quote from Max Stackhouse on the moral meanings of covenant. The doctrine of the Trinity is the discovery that the biblical view of covenant captured something true about God and God's relationship to humanity. So there's something about as we're going through and we're seeing how covenant is playing out, that when we get to the New Testament and we start to get a greater revelation of how God works and the, the more of our understanding of what Trinity is, we go, yeah, his very nature sounds just like what we've seen and how he's been moving through, through all of history. This isn't a surprise. This is just who he is. We just get a greater revelation of it. It's not some side issue. It becomes the very fundamental. God's nature is what drives all of sto the story. So before we dive into Trinity, I just want to add a couple clarifications here because I don't want to um, wander off of what we know are sort of like the core things. The basics of the Trinity, the three members are the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They are in perfect unity, perfectly distinct, co-equal, 
and co-eternal. Those are true, and we will not be deviating or changing any of those things. So how does the Trinity relate, and why should that matter? And the first one is love. This is a quote from Anthony Euvenio. It is the, only the Trinity that God can, can be a God of love, because the very essence of the Trinity is a community of love. He is the lover, the loved, and the act of loving simultaneously. If God is tripersonal, he is love, and the community from all eternity. And it was out of that love that he decided to create other beings to share love with them and bring glory to at the same time. He creates because he is love, not in order to love. That is a very important distinction that differentiates the Christian God from every other God. Because without the Trinity, if you have a God who is one person, then there is no one for him to love. And so love becomes then a secondary issue where he has to create something to love. And so God is no longer love at that point. It's only the Trinity that can be lover and loving at the same time. And that is fundamental to what we believe as Christians. And then out of that, out of that flows the creation. It is because love is a certain type of way it works. And out of that, it creates. Reverend Leonard Vanerdzee says it this way, the nature of true love is not binding or limiting, but expansive. Love flows outwards. It grows. Therefore, the creation of the universe is an overflow of love from that original divine community as it expands in love and it delights to include beloved creatures. And that is what we see with God. He isn't just creating out of sort of like, uh, a cr because he's like, you know, I have, I'm bored today and I need to make an experiment. See how this works out. No, out of his very nature is love, and it outflows outwards into the very creation that he makes. So the first aspect of covenant is to understand that it is, at its core, love. Because God is love, and that's connected. They're just tied together there. The next aspect is, to, we'll start with Philippians 2, verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. If we stop there, what's Paul going to argue for why that's true? Thoughts? Why is it true that we should fu function this way? Yeah, right? This is, this is how God functions, and so this is how we function. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So somehow the Trinity can humble themselves to step down and glorify the others. The Trinity's not easy. I'm still trying to wrap my head around how this works. But let's look at a couple other verses here. John 5, 19 and 20. So Jesus said, Truly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only those 
only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. So the, father, the son steps down, humbles himself to be obedient to the father. In the transfiguration, Jesus goes up and the father says it this way, and a, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son from whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. So now the father is glorifying the son. He's stepping back and glorifying the son. So the son has stepped back and glorified the father. Now the father steps back and glorifies the son. There is this, this stepping back and glorifying each of the members. And that is what Paul is arguing for in Philippians 2, that we, in the same way, step back and glorify others because that is how the Trinity operates. John 16, 7 to 14. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is, out of, it is to your advantage that I go away. For I, if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will no, see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So the son now steps back to allow the, the spirit to come. But somehow by stepping back, Paul says, I'm sorry, Jesus says here that by stepping back, that allowing the Spirit to come, he'll be glorified by stepping back. I, I can't wrap my head around it. It's just, it, it's, it's just, but this is what we're invited into, that somehow in the way that we operate with each other, that as we step back and allow and glorify others, that there is something about that that is, is mirroring what the Trinity does. And we're invited into that. Each member of the Trinity delights to humble himself for the glory of the other two. It is not out of a position of inequality or inferiority that the Trinity functions this way. The Trinity is co-equal, but this doesn't stop the Trinity from working in this way. Quote from James Jordan, each one steps back to glorify the other two. That is the way they are. So that is the way that we are supposed to be because we are images of God. And so we function that way. Another quote from James Jordan. So the three persons of God are in some sense glorifying each other, and yet they already have all glory. If you already have all glory, how can you get more glory? If God is all glorious, how can he be more glorified? And yet in some way, the three persons of the Trinity are always glorifying each other. So covenant. It's complicated because the Trinity is complicated. <laughs> and if we're mirroring out, if God is mirroring out an as aspects of his very nature, we shouldn't be surprised that coming up with a definition for covenant is complicated. But we can't, that doesn't mean that we can't understand, by understanding how, some aspects of how God functions, we can also understand how covenant functions and that, what that invites us into. So just to recap, the Trinity is essential to the understanding of our Christian faith. How God moves in history reveals something about him 
not just some arbitrary motion. Trinity relates through love and humility, which brings glory to each other. So consider Genesis 1. If we read Genesis 1, we'll notice a couple things. It's too short and it's too long. Yeah, it's too short and it's too long. It's too short because it never tells us the details we really want to know. In a scientific community, we're going, why does God do it this way? How exactly did he do it? It just says he spoke and things happened. But like, how? On the other side, it's too long. God is all-powerful. Why take so long to do it? Why not speak it all in in one, wor- one, one word? Let it be, you know, type of thing. Just be. Why take so many steps to do it? So it's too short, it's too long. What are we supposed to do with it then at this point? So imagine for me that you are there at the creation. It's dark. There's nothing. It's just dark. And then there's light. God speaks and there's light. And you're like, there's light. That's exciting. But then it starts to get dark again. What? This is not how I would move in history. Letting it get dark again? We just made progress. And now we're going to go dark again? But then when it comes back to light again, we go, yes, we're back to light. But God doesn't stop there. No, he keeps going. And now he separates the waters. And the next day, the same thing. And each day, it gets dark. And if I'm there, I'm going, what are you doing, God? This isn't the right way. Why isn't it just a continuous progression upwards with no stops in the middle? What is going on here? But this is something about, it reveals something about how God works. He moves from glory to glory, as Donna read earlier in 2 Corinthians 3. God moves in history, covenantally, from glory to glory, or from one glory to another. Consider Genesis 1 from the standpoint of the Edenic covenant. And that starts Genesis 1, chapter, uh, verses 28. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And it continues from there. But just stop right there. Now we get to chapter 2, and we're going, Okay, so humanity is made in the image of God, and he's supposed to be ruling and having dominion. And so we get to Genesis 2, and God takes man, and he invites him, to name things. Hey, we've seen that before. Somebody's been naming things so far. It's God. Oh, he's starting to teach humanity what it looks like to be made in the image of God. He's maturing them. He's growing them. And of all the things he's naming, he's naming the animals, which we've been told he's supposed to have authority over. Okay, so he's starting to teach them and mature them. So we get to page, we get to chapter three, and we're thinking, all right, Humanity's been matured. He's learning. We've got some confidence. We meet a snake, and we're like, he's got this. He knows this, man knows his appropriate place. He's to be over the animals. And we recognize that this animal is more than just a snake. But we also recognize that there is something about it that he's already been taught where his position is supposed to be. But he doesn't. He listens, not to God, but to somebody else, to something else. And so he becomes not the greater thing that God intended him to be, but something less. And as we trace through scripture, we continue to see humanity choosing 
to be less than they were designed to be. Just a constant theme of that. But if we stop there, we sort of end up with like the peanuts analogy. And by that I mean, in comics, there's Lucy, and she's always got the football. This was supposed to be a video. It didn't play. It's not, it's not working. Um, Lucy's got the football, right? And so she holds the football, and every time we're hopeful, she's not going to pull it away before Charlie Brown kicks it. And every time she does. And if this is what we reduce scripture to, is just that every single time we trace every person through, that it's just failure, that's true. There's only one who's been faithful, Christ. And we know that, and we're made in his image, and that's important. But if we make scripture that alone, then we miss something about how God moves. With me. So there's something about this aspect of which is we can see that every single time we get to a story, we're reading, we're reading, we're reading, and we're like, this guy's doing great. He's doing great. He's doing... Nope, not him. Another guy. Ah, ah, nothing. So we get to Christ, and we're super excited because there's finally been that person who has truly been faithful and lived out the image of God. But that doesn't mean that that is the only arc or trajectory that is going on in the story. Consider the story of Jacob. Jacob starts off, and the first couple chapters, he's pretty rough. He's pretty, you're like, man, God chose him? (laughs) Come on. He's making a mess of things. He tries to deceive, he deceives his father, and so he, he damages his family so much, he has to flee. And where he goes, now all of a sudden he gets deceived in the very same way that he deceived his father. His father can't see, and so he's deceived. And guess what Jacob gets? He gets deceived in the dark where he can't see and ends up getting married to the wrong person. And so he gets, he gets deceived. He gets tricked. And we think, okay, where are we going with this? And then he spends lots of times, shockingly, with animals. Ah, we're maturing this man. And he finally gets an inheritance. He has collected all of these things. And then he goes and he meets Esau. And he is finally willing to give up the inheritance. The thing he was so obsessed with, he finally gives it up. He's been matured. He's been brought through. There is both, yes, a failure, but to not recognize that God is moving and changing people to transform them from glory to glory, wherever they are, to bring them into more than they were before. Consider Abraham. Same thing. God tells him, here's what I promise you. And Abraham decides he's going to get it by whatever means is necessary. And he makes a mess of things. But God works and works and works in his life until he again is willing to give up the very thing that he wanted because he's finally been matured enough to be willing to give that up. God has transformed him. There is a trajectory that God works in our lives to transform us, bringing us from glory to glory, because that is who God is, his very nature. But let's step back. We've attracted on an individual level. What if we track it on a more corporate level? What about the movement in the covenant? So consider this parallel with me, will you? The parallel between Moses and Elijah um, I don't have this in your notes because it's big, and I only try to I make everything fit in two pages. If you want this and all of the verses, just come talk to me afterwards. Moses feared for his life and fled to Midian. 
Elijah fears for his life after he talks to Ahab and flees to the east of the Jordan. Moses, in Exodus 2, marries Zipporah. Elijah meets the widow of Zarephath. Moses has a son with Zipporah. Elijah heals the widow's son. Moses returns to confront Pharaoh. Elijah returns to confront Ahab. Moses meets with Aaron and the elders before he goes anywhere else. Elijah meets with Obadiah as he comes back. Moses and God face off against the gods of Egypt. Elijah and God face off against Baal. And in both cases, it's utter and complete annihilation. God wins, hands down. Moses goes up on Mount Sinai right after this. That's where they head, right? They go to Mount Sinai. Elijah goes up to Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai. And in both cases, they both die outside of the land on the other side of the Jordan, and no one knows where he is buried. Moses appoints Joshua as his successor. Elijah appoints Elisha as his successor. So you'd say, well, ask parallels, David. Great. But what's the point? So Moses is given a set of rules. These are the things that have to do with the covenant. If we read what Elijah is told when he's up on the mountain... First Kings 19, verse 15 through 17. And the Lord said, Go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria, and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you will anoint to be king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shephat of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be king in your, uh, be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu be put to death, and the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. What's really crazy about that statement? That sta- those statements in there? What's unexpected? Yeah. Up to this point, the kings, the, the prophets have stuck to only appointing kings of Israel. All of a sudden, there is a new move. God is now moving again, and he is not only limiting his people to a certain area, he has expanded their authority. And all of a sudden, as you're tracking through the Bible, they are going everywhere. They're going and talking to all different types of kings and places. They are no longer constrained to Israel. God has expanded their authority. There is a movement outwards because God does not stop. He moves forward in history. Consider the parallel between Elijah and Jesus for the same reason. This is, I'm specifically drawing on Matthew 15 through 17 here for this one. Um, Elijah goes to the region of Sidon. Jesus goes to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Elijah meets a woman. Jesus meets a woman. Elijah raises the woman's child from the dead. Jesus heals a woman's daughter of demon possession. Elijah returns to Israel, as does Jesus. Elijah and God face off against Baal. In Matthew 16, there's this whole section where he is just focused on spiritual warfare. And Jesus is talking about the gates of hell will not prevail and there will be authority given to the, the disciples to have and take over and grow the kingdom. And so he has gone into, of all places, a place that is actually known to have what's called the gates of hell. And he's standing there saying, these gates won't stand because I'm conquering it. And so we get to see this parallel between Elijah just feeding the the, the God of Baal and Jesus going in and, and defeating all spiritual powers that are in that area. 
Elijah wants, you know, after all this amazing things that happen, Elijah talks about wanting to die. Jesus turns around and he flips it on his head and he foretells his death. He's not afraid of his death because he knows what, what it brings through it. Elijah's terrified of it because every single person through scripture doesn't measure up to what Jesus does. But Jesus embraces what he knows needs to happen. Elijah goes up on Mount Horeb to meet with God, and Jesus goes up on the mountain where he meets, surprisingly, Moses and Elijah. Jesus is a new Moses. He is a new Elijah. He is a better Moses. He is a better Elijah. And in the same way that we move from a, um, the covenant with Moses to an expansion with, Jesus, or with Elijah to have even greater authority, Jesus is the same way. He brings even more authority. Now, in this case, instead of being told what to do, the disciples are told, listen to him. Listen to him. He's the, he's the authority. You don't need to be told, I don't need to tell Jesus what to do because he already knows. He's the one who's going to tell you what to do. So there's already this growth. Kingdom grows because that is how God moves. And we see that from page one all the way through. The region of God's influence grows from one phase to the next. Just to continue this trajectory just a little bit farther, just for... Humor me. Um, Moses uh, anoints Joshua. First thing Joshua does, he miraculously crosses the Jordan and goes into Jericho. What does Elijah do? Or Elisha do? He miraculously crosses the Jordan and goes to Jericho. Where, instead of defeating Jordan or uh, Jericho, he actually helps and heals their water supply. And so we see, again, this trajectory of God doesn't just say, you know what, we need, we've used warfare, we're just going to continue to use warfare in the same way. He transforms it. And the same thing is true of the disciples. They also, just like Elisha, or Elisha sees Elijah go up into the clouds, or, you know, is taken away, so they see Jesus taken. And so the disciples are now functioning in the same way. They're new Joshua's, they're new Elisha's, and they are bringing new warfare. And what we see in Acts is not the same as what we see with Joshua. There's a transformation. God moves forward. That's just how he works. So as we move and we expect with God to move, we should expect different things. So when, G when Jesus comes on the scene in the first place and they're all expecting a king, they haven't been paying attention to the story. Why would we expect to Jesus do exactly the same thing, to become another David? He's going to be so much more than what was before because that's how God moves. And so that's what we would expect. We would expect nothing less of him. A couple clarifications just for this, just because I, I feel like it's necessary. God does bring judgment. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that God does bring judgment through things. He moves forward, but there's still judgment that's necessary. Things that are still hap necessary to happen because people choose to be disobedient. That hope, the hope is not in avoiding judgment but in what God will bring in and through the judgment. Because as God moves, he doesn't just stop there, he continues forward. Not all that happens right now is according to God's will because creation is still groaning for restoration, as Romans 8 puts it. Don't confuse political power for God's kingdom because it's very easy to sort of focus on whatever's going on today and to think that, if there's something about the way our system is, political system is working, therefore there's something wrong with God's kingdom. Those are not the same thing. doesn't mean we shouldn't care about the political system, but to get confused between those things and to tie them and say, they, they, if, the, if the political system is broken, therefore God's kingdom is broken, is not the same thing. 
And we look forward to the day when God will bring final judgment and restore his creation. Questions before I close? What do you mean? The story, the projector. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I would say, you know, like there's something recognizable about each of the ones. They're not just completely dis- disconnected. They're moving forward. And so I think as you sort of like look at those, you should be, we, we, that is what the church is invited into, is to ask the question, okay, we're not trying to get back to say what was 10 years ago or 15 years ago. That's not what we're called to. We're called to so much more. So... What does that look like? And that's where we spend a lot of time in prayer and, you know, with the Spirit saying, Lord, what, is, what does it look like to move forward, to not stop, to not be hopeful for whatever happened in the heyday of whatever your heyday used to be? Because that's not how God moves. He brings forward. He brings more. And to limit him to whatever used to be is to stop and not, not connect with who God is. Is that? Okay. Anything else? Okay. In closing, to, go, to tie back to the opening quote, Michael Reeves from Delighting in the Trinity, the Trinity is not some inessential add-on to God, some optional software that can be plugged into him. At bottom, in essence, this God is not, first of all, creator or ruler, or even deity. In some abstract sense, he is father, loving his son in the fellowship of the spirit. A God who is in himself a community of love, who before all things could never be anything but love. And if you trust and come to know such a being, it changes absolutely everything. Covenant is not an outworking of the very, na- is, is a, is an outworking of the very nature of God. It is an outflowing of love. It invites those made in the image of God to be moved from glory to glory. Lord, I thank you that this is how you move, that you move us from glory to glory. Thank you that your very nature is love and humility and that you invite us into that. And I pray that you would just continue to transform us, to not just let these things become checkboxes that we agree with, but that they change us, transform us. In your name, amen.